Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, July 7th, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today, you'll hear Nurse Vicky's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include lower blood pressure readings may not be better in treating high blood pressure and may even be dangerous. And what's more important in a blood pressure reading, the top or the bottom number and the dangers of each. And why the most common blood pressure medication prescribed by doctors can be shockingly dangerous to your health. And besides blood pressure, we're also going to be talking about how our GI tract protects against getting diabetes and obesity. <laughs> That's right. And lastly, how can watching TV kill you? Whoa. You know, people often get confused about blood pressure and what it really means. So we're going to be talking mostly about systolic blood pressure and the upper, which is the upper number in your blood pressure reading. Right. If your systolic blood pressure is high, it can cause heart attacks, heart failure, and strokes. So does it follow that the lower the blood pressure, the better? Well, now some doctors have thought so. Mm-hmm. But... New research shows that lowering systolic blood pressure below 120 is not necessary to decrease these dangerous risks and it doesn't provide any benefit. So what's the problem with low blood pressure or hypotension? Yeah, well, for a long time, I mean, it just makes common sense that if your blood pressure is lower, that the risk of getting vascular complications because high blood pressure does what? It wears out the arteries and it causes them to develop arteriosclerosis and also sets the stage for rupturing them. So it would make sense that you would think that the lower the blood pressure, the better, as long as it's not too low. But what's too low and what does that do? So you're looking at a problem of how much blood flows through your arteries to your heart, to your kidneys, to your brain, to every, your tissues. Yeah, to your tissues in general. And above a certain point, you run the risk of developing this arteriosclerosis and ruptured blood vessels. You don't want that. And then you get no perfusion through those arteries. Or we run the risk of blood pressure that's too low, which means there's not enough pressure to get blood to circulate through the tissues and back to the heart. It, too, can cause problems of uh, organ failure, like a heart attack or a stroke. Because there's inadequate blood pressure, uh, inadequate flow through it because there may be a blockage there that's caused by arteriosclerosis because you have hypertension. And now that you're treating it, if you overtreat it, you wind up with poor perfusion again and it causes the same problem. So let's just define what systolic is. That's the upper number because we're going okay. to get to the diastolic later. Okay. So what we're measuring is the the pulse pressure. There's a pulse of blood that's that's formed when the heart contracts. So the heart contracts, pushes blood out the aorta to the tissues in a pulse wave. The highest level of that pressure is called the systolic blood pressure. That's the top number. The bottom number is the lowest blood pressure that forms uh, at at the end of that pulsation, and that's called the diastolic blood pressure. And an ideal blood pressure is about 120 over 80. Then there's the pulse pressure which is the difference between the systolic and diastolic. 
And that tells you a lot of information about how much force is being placed on that blood vessel as each pulse comes through it. And the bigger the pulse pressure, so you have, say you have a blood pressure of 140 over 80. Now you're looking at a 60 millimeters of mercury difference between the systolic and diastolic when you compare it to somebody who has 120 over 80. So that blood vessel basically is going to wear out sooner. It's going to develop arteriosclerosis. And it's also going to run the risk of uh, causing other problems. It can cause a rupture of that blood vessel. Okay, so now we're talking about the low blood pressure. When we talk about low blood pressure, yes. so it, what this article was about was that if you get the blood pressure too low, yes. because a lot of times you treat it, the doctor treats it, and then you get it too low. So let's talk about some of the things that can happen with this low systolic blood pressure, like angina, for example. Yeah, okay. So, so what I'm saying is that we're looking at the amount of blood that's pumped around the body to various tissues. If you have a blockage of arteriosclerosis because you have a problem where your arteries are forming plaque and obstructing, or you have a near full obstruction, you need more blood pressure to pump blood through there. And if your blood pressure drops below a certain level, oh, it's you can not see strong enough to get in there. It can't get through. So if it doesn't get through, you're going to have the same problem as if you had an obstruction, okay, if your blood pressure is too low. So it's a relative thing, and it's a balance between the size of the opening of a blood vessel, which will be compromised if we have arteriosclerosis, or if we rupture something. So if it's, the blood pressure is too low, you get the same problem with lack of perfusion as you do with a with high blood pressure that causes arteriosclerosis and blockage of that blood vessel. So you get in trouble either way. So when you're treating somebody for hypertension, you've got to be very careful because everybody's different. You don't know how much arteriosclerosis there is in each person. Now, you can do tests to try and assess it, and you can follow people to see how they do. If they develop signs of angina, say if they have a problem with heart disease, if you know that you're, if you're dropping blood pressure too low and they're having symptoms, that's something you don't want. And if your blood pressure is too high and those plaques keep building up and start obstructing blood pressure, blood pressure flow for that reason, you're going to have inadequate flow. And that, too, causes angina. Then there are changes in circulation. Meaning this is why be, you have a doctor. This is hard to follow. <laughs> well, okay, but it, it's really pretty straightforward. There are two problems. One is that you, you have blockages that develop when you have hypertension that will impede blood flow because there's a block in the blood vessel. Say it's a half or three-quarters or 90% blocked. You need more pressure to get that through then at that point. But if the process continues to develop, it will eventually obstruct. So once that process is started, you've got a problem. And the question is, is how much should you low, lower your blood pressure so that you don't reduce flow in that artery, say, of your heart that has a blockage and now is massively compromised in forward blood flow? Right. And that is what causes symptoms, too. So treating hypertension takes a lot of thought. You've got to look at the... At the at what's really important, and that's delivering nutrients to the tissues, and that depends on how much blood flow goes through an artery. So when you have a block in your heart, okay, in, in an artery, or many blocks there, you've got many areas where you're going to have less perfusion, and that's what causes the angina 
the congestive heart failure, the rhythm disturbances. If that happens in your brain and you have lowered flow through it, that's what causes insufficient blood flow to the area beyond where that block is, and you may have a transient ischemic attack. So you may not. That's be, a TIA. We hear everybody talking about TIA. It's like a stroke, but, but it's, it's like reversible. A little stroke, huh? Well, it's not really. Yeah, you could look at it that way, but symptoms usually clear up in ten, fifteen minutes, or in less than twenty-four hours. Okay, and when you have that problem, it it tells you. We've got problems with arteriosclerosis in this person. And, and if they have hypertension, which many of them do, you want to treat that hypertension so that you lower the blood pressure to a point where the arteriosclerotic process stops as much as you can and also maintains adequate blood flow through an area where there's a compromise in the, in the diameter of that blood vessel because of the plaque. Well, that's clear. Yeah. That's a good explanation. So this is why it's so important for people to take their own blood pressure, isn't it? Exactly. I tell my patients, if I'm worried about them at all, to go ahead and take their blood pressure prior to taking their blood pressure medication because our blood pressure goes in cycles and it varies. One day it may be 180 over 110. Another day it may turn out to be normal. It may be 130 over 90 or 130 over 80 or, or less than 140 over 90. And what happens if it drops a little bit more for some reason? Because maybe you've exercised a lot and you become dehydrated and your blood pressure then is, is lower because you've lowered the volume. And then you take a pill for your blood pressure and, and really it started out at 110 over 70. With a glass of water. <laughs> yeah, with a little glass of water. And you wind up with a blood pressure that may drop to 90 or 80 or 70. And if it's too low, you can't perfuse the tissue. So that's just as dangerous as developing progressive disease from having blood pressure that's too high that keeps increasing the size of the blockage of the plaque. It continues to grow. So it's a double-edged sword. Well, another thing that I think can happen is you can get uh, claudication or leg cramps when you're exercising. Well, that's right. See, in peripheral vascular disease, that's what you're talking about. There are blockages in the artery that are in the legs. They're usually in the femoral arteries uh, or, or even more dis closer to the foot. And when those blockages are, are substantial, only a certain amount of blood flow can get through them. Now, the tissue demands when you're resting aren't much. You, can, you may have no symptoms at all. And, and typically, people who have peripheral arterial disease or peripheral vascular disease, they have plenty of blood flow at rest. But when you exercise, the tissue demands for oxygen and nutrients goes way up. And when it's high like that, the tissue demands can't be met if the block is too big. And so what happens is you feel the pain that develops in those malnourished tissues that are saying, I'm having a problem functioning now, and, and the pain is what gets you to stop. So you stop. Mother Nature is wonderful, huh? How she sets that up for yeah. us. You stop. The tissue needs go down. You, you solve that nutrient and oxygen deficit and the symptoms disappear. That's why people who have this pain when they exercise, it's called claudication. That's why these people uh, basically are having symptoms when they, when they start running or doing something that uh, is too much for what they can supply to their muscles and their and legs. And yet isn't the exercise good for them though? Yeah, it's a double-edged sword again. You want to exercise as much as you can. You want to control the causes for peripheral vascular disease, which might be diabetes. It could be hypertension. It could be uh, cholesterol rate-related problems. 
uh, it's because there's inflammation in the body and that causes vascular injury in the in the in the blood vessel walls and you develop plaque in different areas depending on who you are it's in a different place so when somebody who has disease that's forming in their legs and they have peripheral vascular disease, you may have a 99% blockage or a 95% blockage. Now, you can't really pump a whole lot of blood through a blood vessel that's got 1% to 5% of its its lumen Mm -hmm. available because you can't get much blood through that no matter what you do. And so the tissues are going to react and they're going to give you pain. It's the same thing as the heart. When you have pain in your legs, it's called claudication. When you have pain in your heart, it's called angina. When you have a transient ischemic attack, or when you have limited blood flow to your brain, it's called a transient ischemic attack. So now you can see the pattern of how this works. It's really pretty straightforward. It's about how much blood can you deliver to the tissues, and does it meet the demands that are created by the amount of exercise or the amount of demands the tissues have? That's what this is about. Okay, so let's talk about some of the causes of low blood pressure. Okay. There are a lot of things that are going to cause uh, low blood pressure. Certainly one of the most common uh, would be to be overtreated for hypertension. Mm -hmm. So you're taking drugs now that normally most of the time would allow you to pump enough blood around without a pressure that's above where it should be. And again, the importance of of having a normal blood pressure is to stop the progression of the of the blockages or the ruptured blood vessels that develop because the pressure is too high. So that's what's happening there. Well, many times, too, when people are in shock or they go into shock or oh, they've lost a lot of fluid. Oh, you're in the hospital? Like, you know, if, if you're dehydrated. You that, have a blood loss, that will too. Do yeah. People who have adrenal insufficiency, so their adrenal glands don't make enough adrenaline or noradrenaline or other factors that maintain blood pressure. If they have vertigo, feel faint? Well, that may be for people who have uh, nervous uh, conditions that are related to the vagus nerve. It gets a little bit complicated, and that can drop blood pressure. I mean, shock can. There's this thing uh, where your heart can go into shock uh, that can stun it. It's called the broken heart syndrome. So people who are in shock because of the death of a, of a spouse or something like that, very often there's a stunning of the heart muscle and it can't, blood, it can't push blood out for a period of time that, that follows that. But they can fully recover. I mean 100% recover because they don't have arteriosclerosis to start with. So anything that can interrupt blood flow can cause the problems of low blood pressure that lead to not enough nourishment to the tissues in various places, and a wide range of symptoms that are related to it. Well, one thing uh, that we don't hear about too much is the parathyroid or the parathyroid glands. Mm -hmm. And I guess those can cause high blood pressure. That's not a very uh, well-known fact in medicine. fact is there's a hormone called parathyroid hypertensive factor that a PhD from Canada, his name is Peter Pang, did lots of research on about 20, 25 years ago. And it was beautiful at how we showed that this hormone that's in the parathyroid glands, which are little glands embedded in the thyroid gland. That's why they're called parathyroid glands. Oh, so they're, they're in f- the thyroid? Yes. Oh, I thought they're they were f- just next to it. Well, okay. they're right on it, okay? okay. And they, yeah, and there are four of them. And if one of them over overproduces the amount of hormone that it should... They can form little tumors that are usually not cancerous that are called parathyroid adenomas. And in that setting, 
what happens is your blood pressure will go up because this parathyroid hypersensitive factor gets excreted in high amounts and it raises your blood pressure. It sounds like everybody with hypertension should have that test done. Well, I think so. You know, when I did these tests about 15 years ago when I first learned about it, I was finding people who had that. And and Peter Pang himself thought that maybe 30% of people who had what's called essential hypertension, meaning it's primary, we don't know mm-hmm. what the cause is, that was the he cause. thought that was the cause. Oh. And he might be. He could be right. So that's a a rather uncommon thought and something that's been lost in our in our research that's too bad because we should have those tests available to screen people because if that's the case you really want to know it because the parathyroid gland is very important in managing calcium metabolism and calcium metabolism has a lot to do with regulating blood pressure causing kidney stones uh making you get osteoporosis it can make you fatigued and uh, it's something that uh, can lead to a lot of disability. So it's just something to throw in there that probably isn't going to help you a lot because you can't get the test, but your doctor may be uh, considering the possibility of ordering a parathyroid hormone level as well as a calcium and an ionized calcium. That's getting a little bit too technical for this show. Okay, so we've been mostly talking about the systolic pressure, and it's worse if your diastolic is high also. Well, they both cause problems, yeah. and, and, and we're going to be talking about the difference in that in a, couple, in a few minutes. So, so how do we know when to treat the high or the low blood pressure? Well, what this article is trying to tell us, and what they did is they looked at almost about 4,500 people uh, in a study they followed for 21 years, and they looked to see if lowering blood pressure below 140 uh, did any anything more to prevent problems like heart failure, stroke, or heart attacks. And what they found was is once it was under 140, it didn't make any difference. You I, didn't get I any better. I thought it was 120. Fa- no, once you get under 140, it doesn't make any. You don't need to lower it any further. So that's what this is saying. If it's 120, uh, I mean, you would think that would be better, and it might be, but as it turns out, when you treat it to below a level like that, it's not doing you any good. So we should be dropping our blood pressures in general to about 140 on the top and about 90 on the bottom, and you'll do as well as you can do with treatment, even though people who don't have hypertension that have lower blood pressures will do better. Well, they will have fewer news. heart attacks and strokes. This is good news for people with hypertension, I think. It is. And, and there's this kind of a safety barrier there or a safety uh, place where we can go that tells us take it to 140 over 90 and stop. Don't run the risk of developing these problems of hypotension, which can cause the same problem because we're talking about what? Blood flow on the one hand. And we're talking about the progression of the disease uh, because of, of what high blood pressure does to arteries. And that is what this is about. So the way we treat this is ba- basically with lifestyle, getting enough sleep and exercise You're talking and reducing about stress. the right thing again. Healthy diet. We tend to use too many drugs. They have side effects that we tend to ignore. And the safety of multiple drugs at the same time has never been tested. So we'll get to some of that too in this show later that tells you what blood pressure pills that are used the most by doctors that are very dangerous in some ways. And it's just the standard of care. So we'll have to, that will be very interesting to hear. Okay, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Zabuda here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Vicki's first 2020 tip on 
Yogurts that are worse than donuts. Now, there's a good one. Really, I can't wait to hear that one. And when we come back, we're talking about why you need to know the effects of both systolic and diastolic hypertension if you want to know what it does. Yogurts can be worse than donuts? You know, most people assume that yogurt is a healthy food, but that can be a misconception because it can be causing people to ingest more sugar than what they bargained for. So I have a list here of some yogurts that are actually worse than donuts, and they're based on a Krispy Kreme donut. You're kidding. (laughs) That contains about 10 grams of sugar each. So, of course, you know, there are other nutritional factors to consider, so... We're not suggesting here that that you eat donuts instead of yogurt. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because, you know, it's it's good to eat yogurt, especially if you're like trying to get probiotics in you and all that kind of thing. But Yoplait Strawberry Original Yogurt. Ounce for ounce, the Yoplait yogurt contains far more sugar than a Coke. You're kidding. Amazing. Activia Blueberry Yogurt is tied... With Yoplait Strawberry Original for the worst yogurt. Because this yogurt contains nearly 26 grams of sugar for six ounce serving size. Or the equivalent of two and a half Krispy Kreme donuts. Wow. Bring me my Krispy Kreme, huh? Is that what that's about? And the same with brown. No, that's what I just said. I know. I'm (laughs) joking with you. And it's the same with the brown cow nonfat vanilla. It's a little has a little bit less sugar because it contains twenty five instead of twenty six grams of oh, sugar for a six ounce serving size. And then Dannon fruit on the bottom yogurt that has the blueberry on the bottom. A six ounce package of out a six ounce package of this yogurt contains twenty four grams of sugar, or the equivalent of two and a half donuts. And Stonyfield, that sounds so healthy, Stonyfield Organic Smooth and Creamy French Vanilla, that's the equivalent of 21.75 grams of sugar for six ounce serving, so, or just over two donuts. So which yogurt should you choose? Well, either <laughs> plain yogurt and add fresh fruit to it, or choose Greek yogurt that tends to be naturally lower in sugar. And pay attention to both the grams of the sugar number and the serving size, because some brands like the Activia are actually actually a lot smaller than most of the others, like mm. at 4.4 ounces. I see. So, but what they did in this, this study was that they compared the exact amounts of the yogurt. So they were all the six ounces. So if you're eating yogurt to get natural probiotics, it might be healthier to take the supplement, like I said before, or use it like sour cream on potatoes or a dip on your omelet or your scrambled eggs. And some of the Afghan foods I've been noticing lately, they make a lot of these tasty dips and sauces and dishes with flavored yogurt, like, for example, with garlic and, and mint mm-hmm. and lemon and cucumber and some other spices and things. Yeah, they so, have more of a sour taste than a sweet taste, a lot of them. No, it depends on which one you do. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't. Yeah. I've okay. been experimenting with more and more of those lately. Anyway, you know, when it comes to blood pressure, some say the systolic or the number on the top is more important, and others say that the diastolic or the lower number is more important. And a huge British study now shows that raised systolic and diastolic blood pressures may have different effects on different types of cardiovascular diseases and at different ages. Yeah, well, that's true. And, and, a, and a lot of 
this information, actually, we've known about for a long time. When I went to school a long time ago, we all talked about the diastolic blood pressure being the big thing. Why? I'm not really sure why. And as time went on, we, we began to appreciate that it wasn't your age uh, plus 100 that your blood pressure, your top number, should be at. We were taught that if you were 50 years old, that it should be 50 plus 100 would be a, a normal blood pressure for the top number. It should be 150. And as we learned more and more about the effects of systolic blood pressure or the top number, we found that that wasn't true. So we need to look at, 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 the, at the whole picture there. We also have something called a pulse pressure, which is the difference between the systolic and the diastolic. I mentioned that earlier in the first right. part of the segment of this show. And that's the pressure that determines the most about risk for all-cause mortality from arteriosclerosis from hypertension. But like you said, there are certain kinds of problems that we get more typically with systolic hypertension and from diastolic Yeah, I thought this was interesting because with systolic, it can increase your risk for a hemorrhagic stroke. Doesn't that make sense? If the pressure's high, you rupture a blood vessel yeah. in your brain, <laughs> and, and all of a sudden you've got a, a bleed, and if you've been taking aspirin or some anticoagulant, you're toast. And that's why the business of saying taking aspirin categorically across the board is a good idea to try and prevent heart attacks and strokes. You may lower the risk for heart attacks and certain kinds of strokes, but if you have a problem with the bleed, you're toast. And so you need to know what category you fit into. And that's why, in general, aspirin is not what I use to try and prevent heart disease and stroke. We use things that have less of an impressive effect on anticoagulation but still seem to work, like fish oil or in some situations, maybe natokinase or mm-hmm. lumbrokinase, which are interesting or enzymes. ginkgo biloba, too, maybe. Ginkgo is yeah. another one that all can be used. So you need to really know your patient well and know what the situation is, how high their systolic is, how high their diastolic is, because we also know that diastolic blood pressure is more apt to cause abdominal aneurysms or thoracic aneurysms and kidney failure. So... It's good to know this, but it's also good to be able to know your patient well, too. What are they at risk for? So a blood clot in your brain, what's causing that? Because it's like there's two different types of strokes. Either it's a bleeder or it's a clot. Okay, most clots come from the neck when you have carotid artery disease. And when there's an ulcer there or there's a plaque there uh, and it's vulnerable to break off, a clot can form there, and if that clot breaks off in the carotid artery that goes to the brain, that clot goes into the brain, and when the blood vessels get too small, it plugs them up. And then you have a, a, a stroke that's caused by a clot. Well, can't you also get it from, from blood clots other places in your body? Yes, your heart, like your for lung, example. Or, or your lungs? No, no, not from your lungs, because the lungs... What about from your leg? If you have no, a thrombo- no, you can't that doesn't go to cause a stroke, because look at the circulation pattern. As blood comes back those into... those blood clots, can they go to your heart then? Is that yeah, what that... No. Well, yes, they can get to the heart, but they can't get past it. Okay. They go to the lungs first. So blood that returns, okay, from the body is pumped from the right ventricle into the lungs. And it, gets, it goes through the lung capillaries, which are too small. So you may have pulmonary emboli, okay, little clots in the lung that can cause real havoc because it blocks uh, your body's ability to deliver... Uh, oxygen uh, to your heart so that it can pump 
blood around the body. So if you have infarcts in your lung, that's a big problem. But in unless you have a hole in your heart that goes from the where the blood comes into the heart and the right atrium and goes straight across into the left atrium, then it can cause a clot. But that's a rare thing. But don't you hear, too, sometimes like if somebody fractures a hip, an old person, that they could throw a clot? They throw a clot, but where does it go? It that's goes to I'm the asking. lungs. Okay, it goes so to the lungs. It doesn't go to the heart. So the, the place where it does cause a problem is in people who have atrial fibrillation. There, the clot is on the left side of the heart, and that in the, from the left, see the blood goes into the, from the legs and the rest of the body into the right atrium, which goes to the right ventricle. It's pumped out of the right ventricle to the lungs. So now it's filtering out all those clots. And that goes back into the left atrium on the left side of the heart, down into the left ventricle. And then when the heart constricts, it pushes blood out the aorta to the body, to the brain and, and the rest of the tissues. So if there's atrial fibrillation and there's a clot in the left atrium, which is where they form, it can go to it can break off, go to the left ventricle, pump out the aorta, and they typically go to the brain causing strokes. That's different. And when you so you can have clots that form in the brain for from different causes. You can have blood that's too thick, that might accelerate stuff, particularly if you have some arteriosclerosis to start. It can be from atrial fibrillation, so it's a problem right in the heart, and that's a common cause of it. Or it can be because the carotid arteries develop a plaque of, of arteriosclerosis, and that causes probably 85% of strokes from the carotid artery. So when you have blockage there and an ulceration, what happens is the, uh, the, the clot will form, they break off, and then it goes back uh, into the brain. So you need to know the difference between the different types of hypertension. You need to know your patient before you can make decisions about what to do. Well, it's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Sabuta here with Nurse Vicki. We'll be right back for more Prescriptions for Health radio. We'll be talking about why the most common blood pressure medication prescribed by doctors is shockingly dangerous to your health. Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. Blood pressure medications and their side effects are not to be taken lightly, particularly in older adults where the risk is greater. And thiazide diuretics have been the drug of choice, decreasing blood pressure by causing sodium and fluid loss, lowering pressure and volume depletion. Yeah, well, you would think that that makes a lot of sense and it's safe, but is it? So we're going to talk about the common adverse effects that can occur from thiazides and why close laboratory monitoring is so important, and it doesn't happen very often. Right. You know, once we, when we're in medicine, what we are trained to do is to use drugs to solve the problems that we face uh, in healthcare. Try to block the symptoms that occur. And hypertension is certainly no, exam, uh, no exception to that situation. 
And the pharmaceutical industry has a lot of impact on doctors, particularly in their training, because there's a there's a incestuous relationship, a conflict of interest, because big pharma does a lot to teach medical students and to teach interns and residents and people who are in, doctors who are in practice. You can in fact, even get educational units for listening to the pharmaceutical Absolutely. Companies. It's sort of like giving them a license to be able to brainwash you into saying, this is the way to treat it. And usually when we are trained by that authoritative approach, we accept it as being factual. And not only that, the thiazides have been around for a long, long oh, time. 50 years or probably 75 years. They've been around a long time. And they're thought to be really safe. And they lower blood pressure really reasonably well. But look at what, what some of the side effects are of these. And nobody much pays attention to it. And, you know, the most common side effects, according to a study that was done by the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in conjunction with the University of California in San Francisco, they looked at 1,000 veterans with hypertension who recently started taking a thiazide diuretic. Okay, that's hydrochlorothiazide, HCTZ, is what a lot of people call that because the name is so long. And they published an article in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society <clears throat> that would basically looked at a nine-month period where they uh, of people starting this drug and compared it to people who would, who did not take a thi- uh, a thiazide drug, and what they found was 14 percent of older adults that were prescribed a thiazide diuretic developed some kind of metabolic adverse event, which I'll get into in just a minute. Just a minute, and only six percent of those adults that were not prescribed a thiazide diuretic developed. So we're looking at a lot of people who are having side effects. The thing that I think is kind of interesting here is that the type of people that have high blood pressure that would take a medication like this to lower their blood pressure oftentimes have things like high cholesterol Uh and insulin resistance and Uh diabetes, Uh and they might have gout or problems with their kidneys. Exactly. And those are side effects that can be caused when you take the medication. Yeah, and and this article didn't look at all those things. That has to up the risk. Absolutely. So what they looked at in this study was that there were only three metabolic adverse effects, and one was a low sodium in the blood because it, the, the drug causes in, an increase in sodium excretion and volume excretion. It also causes a loss of magnesium, of, of, of potassium in this study. You're right about magnesium, but this study looked at low sodium, low potassium, and also acute injury to the kidney, which you say, well, that must not be much, but they're talking about a 25% decrease in kidney function just over this period of time. And then there are all the other things that Vicky mentioned. It raises your cholesterol. It causes type 2 diabetes to be a more common finding because it causes insulin resistance. It increases the, risk, the amount of uric acid in your body, which causes gout. You'll be low in magnesium and potassium, enough so that you can have profound problems from that that can cause angina, uh, uh, asthma, and other kinds of problems like muscle cramps. And then, of course, this this business with the low sodium and and acute renal injury. Well, it now, seems to that, me that this would be like a quick fix, you know, not something well, that a person should take for a long time because then of all these problems. But everybody does. I mean, that once they're on it, they even make combination drugs that include some kind of drug along with HCTZ. 
Well, the other thing that seems weird to me here is that when you take a thiazide diuretic, it's, it lowers your uh, sodium, mm-hmm. which is what I said at the beginning. Okay. And then that causes this fluid loss that lowers the blood pressure. So there's so, a volume depletion. You become dehydrated from it, basically. And, of course, when there's less volume in the system. But that's not healthy for you to be dehydrated. But it protects you against heart attacks and strokes and some of the other problems you see of hypertension. Okay, so it says you get low sodium. So what are the symptoms of ha- of having low sodium? Oh, that can be profound. And, yeah, and so... In fact, it's a medical emergency if it drops below a certain point. Uh, you get sodiums normally over 135 to 145. If they're down below 120 eight or one twenty five, you're in big trouble. Okay, so you, you so say your so say your sodium gets low mm-hmm. and so they give you an IV or they give you something that has sodium, tell okay. you to eat some chips. Well, I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Okay, right. So they raise your sodium level. Uh-huh. So is that gonna make your blood pressure go back up? Well of course. So So it's kind of a vicious circle. Well it's about shouldn't we think a little bit more deeply about what we're doing? In medicine, we don't look at solving the problem. I mean, what are the causes? We should be looking at the causes of why people get hypertension and paying more attention to that rather than just trying to treat the symptoms of what's happening. Because most people that have hypertension, that Uh take diuretics, Uh their doctors tell them to avoid salt. They go on a low-sodium diet besides. So they're taking these pills plus they're on a low-sodium diet. Well, that's right. And and not everybody gets this. You know, we're talking about in this study, 14% had three of these side effects we're talking about. They didn't look at the rest. So a low-sodium, a low-potassium, and acute kin- kidney injury is all they looked at. But what about the cholesterol, the incidence of of insulin resistance and diabetes and gout. I bet they don't even connect it to that. They probably don't. Well, no, they know, but they didn't study it. So this article only looked at that. And that tells you that 14% of people on this who are older are having a real problem with it. That's a big deal. So it, it raises would, their cholesterol. Then they put them on statins. That's how it goes. Then, yeah. Then you or maybe then they get, get gout diabetes. and put you on allopurinol yeah. and they give you drugs for diabetes. I mean, it's a drug. Culture. Exactly. It's a drug culture. You're right. So what do you do to treat hypertension? Well, let's look at the cause. I mean, if you're a smoker, stop smoking. If you're overweight, deal with your your weight problem. Uh, If you're not exercising, exercise. If you have stress, you got to work through those problems. If you're older, it goes up just with age. If you have chronic disease, kidney disease, it'll increase your your blood pressure as well. So or you, if you need have to diabetes. get at the cause of it. Exactly. Maybe you've got a kidney artery that's stenosed. It's called renal artery stenosis. Or you've got a tumor in your adrenal gland called a pheochromocytoma. Or, or you've a got parathyroid. Some, yeah, parathyroid adenoma. All those things need to be looked at and screened. And doctors generally don't do it. In fact, only 42% of older adults who had begun treatment with a thiazide diuretic, had any kind of laboratory testing in the next several months. So we're talking about a kind of uh, casual approach to this. This is, well, I've done what the book says you're supposed to do. The first stage of treating hypertension is with a diuretic, usually a thiazide diuretic, because they're inexpensive and they, and they lower blood pressure. So we're trading off things here. The we lower the blood is, pressure. We do prevent some things, but we also cause risks for all these other things we're talking okay, about. Okay, so they also said that a lot of times the lab testing is overlooked, and so it's important to oh, do yeah. that lab testing to detect the side effects be- 
because many of these side effects don't have symptoms. That's so right. if your doctor isn't ordering the lab tests, ask your doctor to order the lab tests. Absolutely. Okay, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. And it's time for Vicki's final 2020 tip on some of the amazing benefits of pumpkin seeds. That should be fun. And when we come back, we'll be talking about how our GI tract can protect us against getting diabetes and obesity. And how can watching TV kill you? the amazing health benefits of pumpkin seeds. Pumpkin seeds are the only seed that is alkaline forming. Really? Yes. Well, that's good news to have alkaline uh, seeds for sure. And it can reduce levels of LDL cholesterol. And 100 gram seeds provide 30 grams of protein. That's also 24% of the seed is protein. Wow. They're used traditionally to kill parasites, reduce inflammation for arthritis, prevent kidney stone formation. They're good for prostate health. They promote good sleep. They're filled with minerals, and they're high in zinc. And they also contain fiber and healthy fats. And you don't need too many because there's about 56 calories in one tablespoon. Wow. You know, it's a healthy snack just eating them by themselves, or you can add them to a smoothie, or you can sprinkle them on salads or add them to granola. Well, they'd be particularly good for people who are vegetarians because they very often are low in zinc. So yeah. if it's got high zinc in it, get your pumpkin seeds. That's right. Dry. Yeah. So the microbes that live in the GI tract, they're becoming more accepted in mainstream healthcare now as a powerful factor in causing diseases like type 2 diabetes and obesity. And now we have a study done by Big Pharma showing that pills can affect the microbes and prevent type 2 diabetes. But what are they calling a drug is, in fact, a nutritional supplement to improve glucose tolerance without changing our diet. But basically, this drug, quote unquote, is really a food supplement. Yeah, it is. So eat healthy. Yeah, well, that's what the bottom line is here. And what it's showing is that what does Big Pharma have as its primary goal? The idea is return on investment. And so what they're looking for is more market share in the supplement industry. And what they've done here is really to shoot themselves in the foot in a lot of ways because what they're saying is that, yeah, supplements work, and we've done the research now that shows it. So what we'll do is we'll change things around so we can patent it somehow, and then it won't be a nutritional supplement anymore in the eyes of the FDA, and we'll be able to get our quotes, drug out there. They did that with fish oil, too. Oh, yeah, with Omicar. Sure, that's right. And, of course, it costs a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. So you're right. It's listen to Hippocrates. Let food be your medicine and let medicine be your food. You know, up until now, it hasn't been known what comes first. You know, we always say, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? But this is what comes first, the change in the microflora or the disease that changes the microflora. Exactly right. However, they did find that using this drug supplement can change the microflora and improve the glucose and the the glucose control and inflammation, reducing the risk for diabetes. It seems like more and more lately we keep finding things that can cause diabetes. Oh, right, sure. Like we I were mean, talking about the blood pressure medicine. Oh, yeah, and the statins the do that too. <laughs> Interesting, right? Yeah. And how some of the drugs that we use to, to, to treat diabetes cause the very things we're trying to prevent like heart attacks and strokes. It's like 
what are we doing? You know, we're, it's so going silly. in circles. Well, we're shooting ourselves in the foot every time we turn around because we have been brainwashed into watching those direct to consumer well, ads. Like, yeah, and just yeah. like we're talking about these drugs, we also know that drugs can cause a negative effect on the microbiome and the gut, Absolutely. like antibiotics. Oh, That's why sure. they say if you take an antibiotic. You need a probiotic yeah, and birth control not, pills. Maybe not that yogurt, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's got too much well, sugar Well, it depends on it. how you eat it. <laughs> or which, which one you pick. Yeah. So like birth control pills and NSAIDs and yes. hormones, just to name a few of oh, them. steroids. There's so many things that do that. It, it's crazy. So what we're really talking about here, I think, deserves little introduction. And that has to do with the microflora of the gut. Why? What is that and why is it important? We're looking at the... The organ, the stool in the body is an organ. Hard to believe, but true. Because it has more metabolic activity than any other organ system in the body. And it's in a symbiotic relationship with its human host. So the microbes that live there, of which there are trillions, there are many more microbes in the gut than there are cells in our body. So we're looking about a, at a huge metabolically active organ, the stool that we're in relationship with that does a lot of things to affect our health. So when we upset that microflora and it's abnormal, say by taking an antibiotic, which just wipes out all the good stuff and leaves you what? All those things in there that are, uh, are the ones that are resistant to the antibiotic and it allows them to overgrow because all the microbes in the gut are in competition for turf. And if you feed them by knocking away the, the, the bacteria that are affected by the antibiotic, there is an open season for growth there. And, and a lot of these pathogenic bacteria are held in check by the normal microbes that live there. Like the, they like crowd the, them out. They crowd them out. But when they overgrow, then the toxic products that they make are not in small amounts anymore. They're in much bigger amounts. And when that happens, it affects the metabolism of the, of the body. It, it affects the porosity of the gut meaning you can get leaky gut syndrome because those pores that are in the gut wall will change their size based on how much toxicity there is in the inside. So if there's a lot of endotoxin, which is bad stuff that some microbes make, the more the gut leaks, the more that more things can come across that gut and cause problems that lead to hypersensitivity and, and inflammation. And don't a lot of doctors order um, steroids? Oh, when for people have intestinal problems, not so much. Well, yes, they do to try and quiet them down. And, that's and of course, it, it, it like takes a... care of the, it kills the immune system basically. It knocks it back, so there's not so much of, of a, a reaction that's autoimmune, but it sets the stage for poor healing, uh, for allowing the gut to be pores to be bigger, to perpetuate the disease. But you know, the way we look at it in modern medicine is we do what we can to try and. Stop the symptoms of something like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or some other inflammatory condition in the bowel. And that's what we use as our endpoint. But it all catches up with us down the road. So what we should be looking at is, is ways to support the gut to heal itself. And we, when we do that, we do a lot better. Okay, so this um, supplement that they call a drug, yeah. what is it made of? Well, it's got some interesting things in it. It's got... Three things. It's got inulin, which is a fiber. 
It's actually called fructooligosaccharide. I've noticed that that's written on a lot of the protein powders. Yeah, it's got FOS, which it stands for, and it's found in bananas and chicory and wheat and onions and things like that. And it's also got something called beta-glucan, which is found in mushrooms and other funguses, yeast and bran, and it provides soluble fiber, which is very good. And then the third thing that's in there are antioxidants. They're polyphenolic antioxidants. And that combination changes the way the microflora of the gut behaves. It allows it to be able to increase insulin sensitivity so that the the risk for developing type 2 diabetics or diabetes in people who have the metabolic syndrome where they're at risk for developing diabetes is all changed. And so they published this study, okay, that, uh, that was presented at the International Society of Endocrinology uh, in Chicago in, in June of this year, uh, they, they found that these microbiome modulators, which is saying that the, this drug, that they're, this triple drug that they're, they're uh, forming, uh, is able to change the way that the intestinal microflora uh, operates so that it increases insulin's ability to do its work. It also said that it decreases appetite. Yeah, well, that's nice, too. So They'll play that one up a lot, I'm sure. So what are we saying? We're saying that nutrition is what helps to keep that microflora healthy so that it can operate in a way that keeps us from being able to, or from developing insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. That's a beautiful thing that they've done. Yeah, but they're kind of like saying that you can just take this pill... And yeah. then it doesn't matter so much what you eat well, because you're taking this They pill. basically said you didn't have to change your diet if you took these supplements. So I'd like to say thank you to Big Pharma for shooting themselves in the foot and, and letting us know that it's the things that we eat that affect our microflora and what it can do to protect us from diseases immensely. So we need to eat healthy food, not the typical Western diet. Exactly. I think you're looking at fruits and vegetables and seeds and nuts and uh, herbs and spices. Those are the things we need to consume. Not so much of the animal products, but they're okay, too, uh, in moderation. Yeah, and have some yogurt, but you don't the need right it with one. all the sugar. In right, it. and get the full-fat yogurt. You know, it, that's way – what these yogurts are, particularly the low-fat ones, are appealing to an old kind of thinking where we think that fat is bad for you. And that, as so it turns out, it's the carbohydrates they... are the ones that are bad for you. So they're giving you no fat, which you should have, and lots of carbohydrate, which you shouldn't. And they it's throw they a few lower probiotics the fat in there. And then they put more sugar in yeah, it. Yeah, and throw a few uh, probiotics in there, and then everything's supposed to be okay. Hello? <laughs> okay, so how long is your favorite TV show? I mean, once you plop yourself down to watch TV, how long do you sit or lie down to watch it? Mm-hmm. Think about it. So here's a study that shows that over three hours of watching TV a day can double the risk of premature death. (laughs) And then what if you sit at a computer most of the day and you have to sit while you're commuting to work and Uh coming home? Right, more sedentary stuff. So a sedentary lifestyle is not healthy, and we reported on a study a few months ago showing that even if you exercise, prolonged sitting increases the risk for all-cause mortality. Isn't that a wild statement? Yeah. So you can go out and exercise for an hour in the morning, come back and and be sitting the rest of the day, and and a lot of that is nullified 
because you still are at high risk if you're sedentary. So if you're sedentary with your job, get up, move around a few times, go go up the stairs, find a reason to go to the bathroom or something, but move. Yeah, It's always, important to move. Yeah. Well, one some of the things that it does, the sedentary lifestyle increases the risk for heart failure and it lowers sperm count. Wow. Isn't that something? And so how does it affect kids? Oh, well, kids are, are in, in real trouble because what happens there is a lot of these kids are the ones uh, who are getting high blood pressure uh, or more likely to become obese. And there have been some articles that have been published in other journals like the Journal of American Medical Association's Journal of Pediatrics or in Medical News Today, which is not the greatest journal, but still one that is putting out this information that I think is good stuff. So... We're looking at something that really challenges how we spend our time. You know, we're always talking about lifestyle is the most important and powerful medicine in the universe. So pay attention to the style in which you live your life. That's sort of like our little tagline for this show. And it's so true. And these articles that are being published, particularly this one that came out of the University of Navarre in Spain, published in the Journal of American Heart Association, is telling us that if we are exercising more than three hours a day, we double the risk for things like heart attacks and cancers that are lethal. That's not, that's not small Well, the stuff. other thing, too, that they were saying is it's really dangerous to have a TV in the bedroom. Well, especially for kids because they, what do they do? They get on their bed, they don't do much, and they eat what? <laughs> Lots of things they shouldn't. Mostly exactly. they're snack foods or but you junk know, foods. Watch, watching TV can be entertaining. It's company. Well, it's moderation. relaxing. And then you got to watch all these ads for drugs. Well, <laughs> and then there's the usual TV shows that are not that way. And they're giving us the wrong idea. There's too much violence and sex uh, and movies that really are not you want that you don't want your kids to watch. And we really shouldn't be watching too much either because it like puts it puts the ideas in your head. That are not what the culture needs. I bet it increases crime. Oh, I, I don't think there's And any violence. Problem. There have been studies on that that show and that. And sex. All yeah. those things. Yeah. You know, and they give people ideas, too. But, you know, habits can be really tough to break. Mm-hmm. Maybe they should have a TV anonymous, you know, like they do for Alcoholic Anonymous. <laughs> well, a lot of parents are tempted to use it, like, for a babysitter to put the kids in front of the TV or, you know, when you get up. Early on Saturday morning to go, you know, teach them to turn the TV on so they don't bother you. But then the hours add up. That's right. If you're not supposed to watch more than three hours. Well, that's exactly right. So we should be paying attention to all these things and looking at what do our kids need in order to get the most out of life. Are we teaching them the values that are the important values? And, and, And a lot of the time we don't. Anyway, we're at the end of the show and want to remind you that we're back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on prn.fm and drsaputo.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Prescriptions for health will also be available 24-7 on prn.fm. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the drsaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. Amen. <laughs> 